Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 23. This is the word of God. Starting in verse 1, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. Skipping down to verse 11, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Skipping down to verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Our Father, we're thankful for both good and bad examples that you use to instruct us. And this passage is about that, and we pray that we would all bring uh, an eager and open heart and mind to what you would instruct us, and may it be truly your instruction and not the instructions of a person. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I'm confident God's going to show up this morning because he already has in the first service. I had a little tickle in my throat. It was enough. I had to step out and cough a little bit downstairs and come back. And later in the service, I was just leaning over, joining in someone who was praying up front. And I opened my eyes after the prayer. And on the floor in front of me was two cough drops. (laughs) My, My wife was the only one within just a few feet of me. And I... I literally said to her and Eliza after the service, I said, this is the closest thing to the miracle of manna falling from heaven I have experienced in my life. I got downstairs, was getting myself a cup of coffee, and summer came up, burst my bubble a little bit, said, did you get the cough drops I dropped next to you? (laughs) So, summer I used one, I dropped the other here, which I'm going to grab. And I have it right here, in case I get a little tickle in my throat. Are you surprised that the Pharisees are so much a part of Jesus' instruction in the Bible? I mean, over and over again, he draws attention to them. He's not just interacting with them, which of course he is, and not just correcting teaching that he says is not right or has been added to the scriptures and needs to be on guard against. Uh, but he, he keeps calling them hypocrites and yet is using them as a source of instruction over and over again. Matthew 23, this chapter, 
is literally one of about four chapters in all of Matthew's gospel where if you have the red letters, the ones that show where Jesus is talking, it's one of four chapters where Jesus literally is all in red. He is talking the entire time in Matthew 23, and he's talking about the Pharisees the entire time in Matthew 23. Why is he doing that? I mean, you, you, it, wouldn't it be easy just to sum it up and say, Jesus, I, I think I know what I'm supposed to do with these Pharisees. They're hypocrites. I'm not to be one, and I should stay away from others that are like them. Wouldn't it be easy just to kind of summarize that and say, isn't that the gist of it, Jesus? Well, Jesus seems to have a lot more to say about them, a lot more to teach about Pharisees for us today, because it's one, an entire chapter about their lives and their thinking that he's going to share with us and instruct us in. You know, like everybody else, their lives were preaching. In the sense of our lives are preaching every day through what we say, our attitudes, our actions. We're preaching what we value, the priorities in our lives, what is a God or gods in our lives. And the Pharisees are doing that as well, of course. They're preaching with their lives, not just with their words. And we need to listen to these hypocrites because Jesus is having us listen about them. Now, you might remember when we've looked at hypocrites earlier on, there's some interesting things about the word hypocrite. We, we tend to think of that as, as maybe kind of a common word we use today, usually about Christians that we don't think are measuring up. We even wonder if they are Christians. But Jesus is the only person in the New Testament that uses the word. Of course, that's because he's the only one that knows hearts perfectly. And Jesus also borrows a, a, a term from, from Greek that is about Greek theater, it's about stage actors. And without rehearsing all that that might mean, it's, it ought to be pretty obvious that, that he's pointing out a hypocrite is someone who puts on a mask and pretends to be something that behind the mask, they aren't. But you know what? All of us can put on a mask, but only Jesus can perfectly remove a mask and tell us what's behind it. In fact, I would argue, I don't even think we can do that perfectly with ourselves. Meaning, I don't think we have an insight fully into just the ways in which we have Pharisee tendencies, hypocritical leanings in our lives. But Jesus does, and he wants to instruct us in that. So because Jesus is the one who can perfectly remove the mask and tell us what's behind it, we need to listen up because in all the scriptures, I don't know if there's a place that is quite as extensive in Jesus revealing the hearts of a particular group of people like they are what happens here in Matthew 23. So I want to begin with just looking at verses 2 and 3 of this chapter in Matthew. And I want to warn you right off the, off the bat here that I think verses 2 and 3 are some of the hardest to accept in this whole chapter. Listen to, as I quickly reread what, what Linda's read. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. 
So do and observe whatever they tell you. But not the works that they do, for they preach but do not practice. Pretty clear, Jesus is giving us the definition of hypocrisy. You've heard it. They don't practice what they preach. Jesus says that. That's, he's the one that first described it that way. For they preach but do not practice. But I want you to see what he is telling his disciples. In fact, I want to challenge you to put yourself in the shoes of those disciples. When, when he's pointing out people who he has repeatedly said are falling short of understanding God, who are actually, many of them, on, on, on the road to hell, he even says. But he says, do and observe whatever they tell you. When they are sitting in Moses' seat, that was a place in the synagogue, in which really the lead teacher would sit, the lead rabbi would sit and teach the scriptures. Now you might say, okay, so as long as they were speaking the words of scripture, of course, I need to listen to that, doesn't matter who says it. That's probably not accurate in the sense that they spoke more than just the words of scripture. They would expound that. So Jesus puts really all of us and probably put his disciples in an interesting position of saying, you're to not follow what they do, but you're supposed to listen to them. And I got to wonder if it sits well with you when you think of that. Because it's hard, isn't it, to discard good words from someone when it's coming from a bad example. It's hard to know what to hold on to, if anything, from someone that maybe once was a good example and now isn't. Imagine this, to make it a little bit more relevant today. You find some notes in your Bible tucked in the back there. They didn't even realize they were there. Maybe they're in a Bible you haven't pulled off the shelf in a while. And you find some old notes. Could be from a Bible study. Women's Bible study you were at could be from a sermon preached. But in the time since you took those notes and were so enriched by what was said, that person, whether it was a few years ago, maybe it's been 20 years that you found those notes from years ago, has, is no longer the good example they once were. There's been a significant moral failing. Maybe even walked away from the faith. What do you do with those notes? I mean, the spectrum is everything from, without looking them over, take them right over to the shredder. Though they were very helpful to you sometime in the past, maybe it's just simply, I'll, uh, I'll just hide them. Certainly wouldn't want them falling out if I was at church one time and see the name of who was teaching. Maybe it's to look them over and simply to pray for that soul. You know, honestly, I don't have an answer for that. But I would say that I find it very interesting that Jesus would so clearly point out a bad example, but still challenge listening to that voice. You know, we sang in our first service, it wasn't planned, but we sang the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, Isaac Watts. 
You know, later in his life, it said he began to, to question the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, again, it's been three or four hundred years ago. And, and, and as I looked that up, I found it very interesting what at least one reply to a little blog about that was. Again, someone who, who wrote the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on Which the Prince of Glory Died. Some of you have sang that song for 80 years. We sang it this morning. And I want to be clear, I don't have an agenda of what to do, but I'm just pointing out that what Jesus is doing here raises in our minds a need for discernment. And the reply to this blog describing Isaac Watts questioning in some way the Trinity later in his life was this. I personally think it's better if we just sang songs written by those who are right with God. It's written in reply to this one statement about Isaac Watts and his theology. And in this person's mind, he's creating a direct link between Isaac Watts was no longer right with God because of this view in his doctrine. I'm not in any way taking away from the seriousness of doctrine. But that clear link to no longer right with God. And then he adds this. In this blog, we likely won't be singing his hymns in heaven. I'm not sure what to do with that. But I will say that the scriptures here do raise the challenge and the need for discernment in our lives when possibly sound doctrine comes from an unsound source. Possibly when valuable wisdom comes from a bad example. And I guess the best I know what to do with that is to pray for myself and for all of us that we would have discernment when we're faced with that dilemma. I think a mark of spiritual return at maturity is handling those times when the two don't line up as well as we'd like. In verses 4 to 12, <clears throat> the idea of greatness being found in humility is presented. And so I want to read those verses, and I want to preface them with having you ask yourself this question. What is to be avoided, according to Jesus' teaching, if I am wanting to grow humble. What is to be avoided? Let's read verses 4 to 12. Referring to the Pharisees, Jesus says, They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 
A man named Charles Pope wrote this, hypocrisy is a desperate search for human approval and applause. Hypocrisy is a desperate search for human approval and applause. But you say, I thought hypocrisy was already defined. In fact, I thought Jesus got it right. Hypocrisy is not practicing what you preach. But you know what? I think Jesus both gives us a definition of hypocrisy in verse 3. It's not practicing what you preach. And he tells us, in large part, the source of hypocrisy for any of us for whom that shows up. And it's verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. The source of hypocrisy, the result, the definition of hypocrisy. It's not a new idea. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked and referred to the Pharisees about just things that they did that were to be seen by others. He repeatedly called out when he talked about giving, when he talked about fasting, when he talked about praying. He told them how to do it, and he said, don't do it like, and he pointed out the hypocrites who do it on display. Let me remind you that he said that when he said about them giving. They do it so they may be praised by others. Matthew chapter 6. When they pray, they do it to be seen by others. Remember he talked about them standing on the street corner? And and, and when they give, having the trumpets blown as they went up to offer their gifts in the temple. And when they fast, he said, don't do it like the Pharisees do. They, they, They literally disfigure their faces to make them look gloomy and to be noticed by others. Now what about what he brings up here in this in this chapter? Well, he brings up things like they make their phylacteries broad. What is that? The phylacteries were something that the the Jewish leaders, the rabbis, would take little scrolls of some of the Old Testament scriptures. And they took with with great literalism Jesus' instruction to, to bind those things, even on your foreheads, to bind God's word. And so they literally would have, and I, I could have pulled up a picture of, of someone in modern day, would wear something around their head. There would be a little box that had scriptures in it. And they would wear something on their arm often, just wrapped up, and it would be a box with scriptures in it. And so Jesus would say to them, you, you, do, you even just try to make these boxes holding the scriptures bigger to be more noticed. I pulled out just my wallet, and some of the pictures, literally, that probably existed were someone with something this big. I'm sorry if my hair is in the way, but something this big <laughs> on their forehead, walking around with the scriptures. And it sounds like the biggest box won in terms of notoriety. He said, don't do that. These are to be seen by men. I found it interesting that when it came to the best seats in the house, they wanted that everywhere. It wasn't just at church. Oh, you know, the religious leaders sit up on the front row or they sit up on the the big high back chairs. No, it says whether it was a feast or church, they wanted the best seats. It pervaded this desire to have the most being noticed. It pervaded all of life for them. Everything they do, Jesus said, is for the notice of others. And to be greeted. Again, Jesus says, it's not just at church or at the seminary, professor, rabbi, that they wanted to be greeted. But in the marketplace, the scriptures say, as well as indicating in the synagogue. 
These Pharisees, here's what they did. They cared intensely about people. But what they cared intensely about is being noticed by people, the approval by people, the applause from people. But Jesus began this section saying, and they don't even lift a little finger to help lift a burden off someone. Do you imagine like, like being, you know, trying to climb up something and having a huge weight on your shoulder? And, and you're trying to climb up something, and someone from church comes behind you and say, hey, can I help? And they come over behind the backpack with their little finger and kind of hold up the 80 pounds on your back. I mean, it's a joke. Jesus said they didn't even do that. They did nothing to lift the burdens and demonstrate a care for people, and yet they cared intensely about the approval of people. Hypocrisy is a desperate search for human approval and applause. But you know what humility is? It's a mature avoidance of human approval and applause. That doesn't mean you can never notice and and be noticed in terms of getting recognition. I I intentionally use the word a uh, a mature avoidance of human approval and applause, meaning when one is able, which I think should be our default, if we can pray, if we can give quietly, that should be the goal. Because that, Jesus says, keeps us from heading down a path in which we can be drawn into hypocrisy. The woes follow, and I would simply say, Jesus says, say no to woe. The woes are condemnations. They're not Jesus getting petty, saying, these guys are sad, sorry, guys. It's, it's really a, uh, a, a judgment of them for a variety of things in their lives. And I do want to point out some instruction from some of those. First of all, just the, the first several in which it says in verse 13, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Jesus describes how the Pharisees, the rabbis in that day, would literally, he says, they they travel over land and sea. They would seek at far distances to make a proselyte. It would be the time when they would be willing to bring a Gentile into their midst if by doing so that that man would be a uh, a loyal follower, not of Jesus, but of them. Not of God, but of them. So they demonstrated great zeal with with gathering disciples, but purely for themselves. Jesus is going to refer to them as blind guides. He's going to refer to them as searching far and wide for disciples, and yet shutting the kingdom of heaven in their faces, making them, in verse 15, twice as much a child of hell as they already are. What harsh, harsh condemnation of their behavior. What do we do with people like that? Because I guarantee you, you could think of examples of of people that have been very unhelpful to the gospel, have been very unhelpful in terms of a credible Christian witness. It might be somebody who's on TV and preaching. Might be somebody that was once a Christian author but has just walked away from that. And it's just an example that people point to. 
You know, it could be someone who's, who's an athlete, someone who's a singer in a popular way, or even an actor, actress in, in Hollywood, who you just wish never spoke the name of Jesus because their life seems so inconsistent from at least an outward evaluation of them saying things like God's most important or putting a verse, you know, on their shoulder or whatever it might be. Jesus talked about these blind guides in Matthew 15, and I do want to remind you of what he said back then. He's referring to the Pharisees after the disciples came to him and said, Jesus, do you know that the Pharisees are offended when they heard this saying? Jesus has already been teaching. And Jesus answered them, listen, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. Does it surprise you that Jesus would say, and at least in this particular instance, let them alone? I don't think that's instruction to church leaders when there's something in the church that needs to be handled. A Sunday school teacher, a ministry leader that is no longer an example that is consistent with the teachings and, and the example and the integrity of the church. But when I think of just the broader public, things outside of our influence, it seems to me that perhaps what Jesus is asking us to do is, in one sense, to leave them alone, is, is to pray perhaps for their soul, but at the same time to not be caught up in worrying that God can't handle that. Because I find it very interesting that Jesus would say about these blind guides, leave them alone. My Father will do the uprooting at the right time. It continues, and one of the woes is found in verses 23 and 24. There's seven woes in Matthew. The Hebrews had a tendency of emphasizing things when they taught that really would be like a crescendoing up to a climax and then a decrescendo. Often what was in the middle of a poem, in the middle portion of a, of a significant proverb would be, at the very center would be the climax. And this is the fourth or the very center of Jesus' series of woes. We could make a case simply based on how Hebrews tended to talk, how rabbis tended to talk, that this is the high point of the woes. And here it is, verses 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Jesus knows, because he knows all things, their excessive attention to detail in some things. He knows that the Pharisees, as best we can tell, literally when they bought mint leaves, would count them out, groups of ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Ten for Jesus when I go to the temple. One-tenth of even the leaves that they bought or harvested out of their garden, they would give to Jesus. And yet Jesus says, in a sense, I appreciate your attention to giving to me and the tithe that was required of that day in the Old Testament days. But you have neglected whole swaths of what I would have you do. 
In fact, you have, with all your attention here, you've actually neglected the weightier matters of my instruction. You say, well, I don't like weightier matters. They sound hard. They sound heavy. No, that's actually not what is meant here. Sometimes they certainly are. But what is meant here is the weightier matters, meaning the more central, the, the most important aspects of God's instruction for us. Jesus is saying, you've gotten caught up in some details that, that have a place, but you have neglected the things that matter most to me. In this case, he points out those things that are most important of love and, and of justice and mercy and faithfulness. You know, what the Pharisees got wrong according to this high point in this list of woes is they were giving too much attention to smaller matters, and that's dangerous. It's especially dangerous if you never get to the more important matters. We need to know in God's instruction to us what are those things that are most important. And be cautious of being distracted by those things that Jesus says don't neglect, but put them in their right place. Be cautious when they're causing you to neglect the greater matters of the law. And finally, he's going to tell us to be attentive to external things. To not neglect internal things in verses 25 to 28. He begins in verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate. And then the Greek, yours probably says that. The Greek means very clearly, so that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You know, really one of the biggest themes of this teaching is is the danger of misplaced attention. Misplaced attention. It can show up in terms of misplaced attention that we're, we're far more concerned with our human audience than, than with the audience. It can be misplaced attention like we just have seen in this high point of the woes. Misplaced attention on lesser matters instead of the greater matters of what God would have us do and give attention to. But here, it's the attention to the outside and not the inside. And so when Jesus says that they give attention to to the outer parts of the cup, he gives something, he gives instruction to us that is so important to hold on to. He doesn't just say, come on, pay a little attention to the inside, you know, that little heart, that soul, that that aspect of you that that others don't see, but is is very much what guides you. Which, which, which you're about, yeah, give some attention to that. That's pretty good, too. You know, kind of, it's a both and. You know, I don't think he says that. He is actually saying, you ought to first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, work on the inside, and trust that I will work in the 
exterior, the outside, will be something that will be righteous and clean as well. Uh, the Greeks clear that, that the attention to the inside, the matters of the heart, lead to, cause, enable the outside to be something that takes care of itself. And when he talks about these tombs, we might say, oh, I'm picturing a, you know, one of those cool, cool tombs above ground I saw in New Orleans one time. Maybe I was out in Bonaventure Cemetery in, in Savannah, like Sandy and I were in earlier this year, these cool outward tombs. Maybe some place in Europe, you know, that's a tomb in Westminster Abbey. No, no, no. It is not about, hey, be a beautiful tomb. Now, you know what they would do is before Passover, because the Jews would, would, would be contaminated if they stepped on and got too close to death, too close to, to a grave, they literally would take lime and, and whitewash the tombs so that they were clear to see. And so the whitewashed tombs were not a work of art. They're not something to marvel and say, honey, get around the kids so we can see this beautiful work of art. It was a warning to stay away from what was disgusting, what was contaminating. That's what it meant to stay away from the tombs of this day. When I think and look back over this chapter and I think of the misplaced attention, I think of just several things. I think of this desperate search for human approval and applause instead of focusing on approval and applause that is from God. I think of the misplaced attention for Christians dealing with the world's hypocrites, the world's bad examples of the faith, and perhaps getting caught up in doing something about it when maybe Jesus would say, uh, leave them alone. Pray for that situation, but that's not yours to fix. Maybe it's misplaced attention on things that are the lesser matters in what God would have you to do. Too much attention on lesser matters and neglecting the greater matters. Maybe it's misplaced attention on the outside of your life as opposed to matters of the heart, which is God's intention for how he works on the outside. It's matters that are internal. It's things that he changes on the inside that leads and results, he promises, to change on the outside. You know, some former Pharisees are some of my best examples in life. I'm not going to call out your name if you're one of the two that has really had an influence on my life. Wow, I've never seen the room relax so quickly, like everybody did. But I think of two people. I think of the Apostle Paul. Do you realize... Half of the New Testament books are written by a former Pharisee. He was someone that gave us a marvelous teaching about the importance of not being a Pharisee, but having an authentic faith. When he wrote to his good friend, his, his disciple in the faith, Timothy, he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the aim is love, Timothy, love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Isn't that the very opposite of hypocrisy? Isn't that the very opposite of, of not doing what you 
say is important to you, what you're teaching, what you say is your priorities. Paul gave great instruction. A former Pharisee, repeatedly. But you know what I might say is that one other former Pharisee may well give us the best action plan for responding to a chapter like this. Do you remember Nicodemus? John chapter 3, he comes to Jesus at night. You know, he had something that, that in the Jewish time was even higher in terms of prestige than the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul was a brilliant mind, no doubt, and he was a Pharisee. But it says about Nicodemus, he was both a Pharisee and a Sadducee. He was someone that kind of had uh, the double clout in terms of these key respected uh, groups of people in, in first century Judaism. In fact, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and Nicodemus asks a question of him, he even says, Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Israel. In fact, that's incorrect. He says, you are the teacher of Israel. Jesus himself acknowledges the, the, pace, the position that Nicodemus had. But in John chapter 3, we see that Nicodemus was very much like the Pharisees of that day. In this case, a searching Pharisee. Because by day, he looked and he was, on, he was looking for human approval. When the sun was shining, when, when, in, when the light was there shining on him, he wanted the approval of, of others as he followed in the patterns of just what happened then. But he came to look at Jesus and to find and ask questions by night. When John reminds us about Nicodemus near the end of John, he, he reminds us, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night. What a, what a contrast. The, the applause and approval of men by day, but seeking for truth under the cover of darkness. But Nicodemus changed, didn't he? Nicodemus, something happened from that first encounter when Jesus challenged him to be born again. You heard that phrase, born again, Christian? It's from the interaction, the conversation with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was one who, though he had earlier come to Jesus by night, on Good Friday, met Joseph of Arimathea to help take down the body of Jesus. He wasn't just walking by and happened to just kind of come and help out. He showed up, the scriptures tell us, in John, uh, in the, near the end of John. Uh, it, he shows up with 75 pounds of burial myrrh and incense and spices to help bury Jesus. And these two men, both of whom uh, were, were ones who were really covert disciples, now by day, ask for Jesus' body and, and take the body down. And they wrap it up in the linen strips. I think we could make a case that of all of the human beings that have ever walked this earth, no two men were ever more covered in the blood of Jesus than these two. They were now courageous in a way that they no longer were seeking human approval but had elevated it to God's approval. That day they were committed to what God would have them to do, what was most important as they responded and buried Jesus. And they were both covered in Jesus' blood. How could they not taking the body down and turning it and wrapping it and then hauling it to the nearby 
grave of Joseph. How interesting that a Pharisee of all people would show us how best to not be a Pharisee. I think he gives us a great way in which we put it to action. We come to the cross and get covered in the blood. We live for God's approval and applause, not people's. And we do the most important things that God directs us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your teaching. May we take it to heart. May you change our hearts that we would seek after your approval above all things. We commit our week to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.